prayer here, and then let's get into the Word. Lord, just good to be here tonight. Thank you for the time. We just praise you and thank you for all things. We just think of these outreaches coming up, just the back-to-school giveaway. We just think of just the prayer chain going on at the fair. Lord, your hand to be upon those things, just to represent you, to point people towards you. That's all that matters, Lord, is that they just know you. And as we get ready to get into the Word here tonight, we pray, as always, you would teach, we would listen, um, and let your spirit guide and direct. And we say thank you in your name. Amen. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, continuing our study here through 2 Thessalonians. And let's go ahead and read this, and we'll come back and break this down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the bright of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we introduced ourselves to end times. We went through a real brief outline of end times. We talked about the rapture. We talked about the second coming, the millennial reign, the rise of the Antichrist, etc. We laid the groundwork so we can get into more detail here tonight of what this means and what this represents. Dustin, if you go ahead and put that first slide up there. We're going to get into some more of this Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, just a quick reminder from last week. If you go back to verses 1 and 2, that we're not supposed to be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or word or by letter. If you weren't with us last week, one of the points we said as we talk about end times, that it's easy as we talk about end times to get worked up about these things. And you see extremes. You see the extreme of the people that are constantly focused on end times. So focused on end times, they forget that they're supposed to be living now, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you see people that don't want to deal with end times. You know what? I'm not going to be here for this anyway, so what difference does it make? I'm going to be out of here. Paul said, do not be ignorant of these things. He says that these words are actually supposed to be a comfort to us. Because as a comfort to us that when we're struggling, we're stopping and thinking, Lord, you could return at any moment. And that brings us a comfort knowing this can all be done. So the balance of end times is realizing we're not supposed to be ignorant of it. We're supposed to have a comfort with this knowing that our redemption draws near. And the Lord wants us to have a working understanding. I'm going to be honest. Most of the time when I get a chance to talk to people, it is amazing when you talk to non-believers how often the subject comes up this idea of end times. People have a lot of questions about this. They know the terms, rapture, second coming, uh, antichrist, tribulation. They may not be able to put all the puzzle pieces together, but something that interests them and fascinates them. So it's important for us as believers to have a working knowledge of this. So last week we went through a timeline. We kind of talked about that. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to get online, listen to that, grab a CD of it. Now... Continuing our study through this, we kind of left off last week in verse 3. We talked about the day. 
That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That day being the day of judgment that is coming, that tribulation period that's going to last for seven years with the last three and a half years really being a time of judgment there. We talked about the falling away. We went to the passages in Timothy about how as we get closer to the end, there is a falling away, a falling away from the truth, a falling away from morals, a falling away from a godly standard that God has given us. And then we talked about the man of sin, the Antichrist. And that's what we're going to pick up here today. For the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, we left off last week again, and I need to repeat this. The man of sin being revealed. We don't know who the Antichrist is. And we can't know, because he hasn't been revealed yet. So anytime someone says they know who it is, it is pure, utter speculation in any way whatsoever. Now, if you want to do a neat study on this, I heard a teaching one time. And they said, if you go back and look through history... You know, if no one knows when the end is coming, and that means even Satan does not know when the end is coming, if you go back through history, it almost like he always has one person lined up that could have been the Antichrist at that time. And it's just fascinating. As you look throughout the years, you see these people that at one time was Saddam Hussein, or you go back to Hitler, or you go back to this or that. These are all possible people that maybe the enemy was lining up. We don't know. Nothing's been revealed, and so since it's not going to be revealed, and we're never going to know, let's not even really worry about it. But let's talk about what the scripture says about the Antichrist here. First thing we can see about the Antichrist. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So what do we see here? First thing you see about the Antichrist is he's empowered by Satan. He's empowered by Satan. This is going to be a regular, and I'll use that term lightly, human being. That is empowered by Satan to be this man. Now, Antichrist means either against Christ or in place of Christ. And that's exactly what the Antichrist does. He is against the concept of Christ, but he also tries to stand in the place of Christ. So, he's empowered by Satan. And we got all the scripture references up there for each of these points. He will persecute the saints. He will blaspheme God. And he will be a political power. He will bring this world together by his words, by his charm, by his charisma, but also seems to hint by his also military might in some ways. So he's going to bring this world together in many different ways. Empowered by Satan, persecute the saints, blaspheme God, be a political power. Next slide, please, Dustin. Looking at the next one here. He will line himself with a religious Babylon. There is still going to be a religious system that is left in this world. After the rapture happens... There's still going to be a lot of people who claim to be quite religious. And the book of Revelation is filled with some of these passages and verses and symbolism of what this will look like. You have to remember, when the rapture happens and the believers are taken out, and they're taken out instantaneously, immediately, there's going to be a lot of people who we will deem very religious that are left behind. Well, there's going to be a lot of explaining to do. And I remember one time watching a movie about end times events and they brought up these religious leaders and the religious leaders at the time said, well, this couldn't have been the rapture because if it was the rapture, we would have been taken too. So obviously this couldn't have been the rapture. There's going to be a very strong religious group that's still around and the Antichrist will utilize that. He will use that idea of religion to work in his favor. Now, we also know something here in Revelation 13, 3. It kind of hints at this idea of a fake resurrection. Really, there's these three groups that get together, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. They kind of form their own little unholy trinity, if you will. 
And just as Jesus died and miraculously rose again, it sure seems like the Antichrist is going to have his own little fake resurrection there to bring people to his attention, to bring people to his glory. And he's going to be in power for about three and a half years. And this is going to be that power that he is. And these are the different things that he's going to do. This is that man of sin. This is that son of perdition. And he will eventually be revealed. And this is the person the enemy is going to use to try to take over the world. And this Antichrist will rule the world. They'll rule the world politically. It will rule the world economically. And will rule the world religiously, if you will. And he will rule the world for about three and a half years. And that's what's going to go on there. So going back once again, empowered by Satan... Persecute the saints, blaspheme God, will be a political power, will be aligned with religious Babylon, fake resurrection, will be in power for three and a half years. If you want to go to the next slide, Dustin, let's talk about his little compadre here, the false prophet. Purpose of the false prophet, according to Revelation 13, is he points people to the worship of the Antichrist. The false prophet is kind of this hype man, if you will, that's always pointing people back towards the Antichrist. And he can perform miracles, and note the word miracles there is put in quotation marks. These are false miracles. They're empowered by Satan to bring a glory and attention to the Antichrist. And he's the one that's behind this idea of the mark of the beast that we hear so much about. And so he's the one behind this because this mark of the beast will require the people living in the world during the time of the tribulation that they will have to take a mark on their hand or their forehead to buy, sell, or do any type of commerce. And by taking this mark, you're aligning yourself with the Antichrist. So he's going to use that economic, political power to make sure everybody takes this mark, and this mark then will align them with the Antichrist. And so the mark of the beast is really something he does, he creates, to bring this power unified in under the Antichrist. So that's the Antichrist, that's the false prophet there, and you can read a lot more about them in Revelation chapter 13. Now we'll just stop real quick. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about those two? Those are the two main characters, if you will, the bad guys. Uh, as we get towards here in times. Now remember once again, man of sin, son of perdition, verse 3, will not be revealed until the rapture happens. We can speculate all we want, but we will not know who these people are in any way whatsoever. Ryan. It is. It becomes almost absurd. As I mentioned with you last week, the craziest one I ever heard was back in the mid-90s that uh, JFK was still alive on life support in some basement in Washington, D.C., and they were just waiting for the right moment to bring him out, and he was going to be the Antichrist, and that was, like I said, that was 20, 22 years ago. And it is. It's just absurd. And what happens is people spend all this time debating it, talking about it, analyzing headlines, and could it be this guy, could it be this guy, where really Second Thessalonians is telling us right now, yeah, he's not revealed yet. So if somebody comes and tells me that they know who it is, well then, boy, God was wrong, and I'm not willing to go there. So the man of sin has not been revealed, and when he's revealed, he'll be revealed. But we're not going to be here for that. Please remember your outline, your timeline of end times events. None of this stuff happens until the rapture happens. And the rapture is the believers taking out of the earth immediately. So we're not around for this. If you're born again and saved, and if you accept Christ as your Savior, you are raptured out from this, and you're not here when this man of sin is revealed. Anybody else have anything? Rose. You know, if you talk about the mark of the beast, it's, it's interesting if you 
right. And that's a good word, the way Rose described it, how some of these things like the mark of the beast creeps up on you. You know, once again, I can remember when I first got saved when this technology really wasn't around. It was all kind of uh, hypothetical. And now with this technology being around, I just saw a news report not too long ago where someone had a chip implanted in their hand and they could lock and unlock their car door just by waving it. Now, I don't know what that really gains in any way whatsoever. I don't think it's that much work to pull your keys out of your pocket, but... That's what they went ahead and did. And, yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon now to have chips and dogs, you know, to locate them back. This type of stuff that seems kind of absurd in some ways, it kind of creeps in, and it kind of gets a little closer and closer and closer. Now, we don't know exactly what this mark of the beast will look like. We don't know. But it's interesting as you look at technology and you look at what's happening in the world today, these things that maybe 10, 15, 20, or even longer years ago would have seemed almost outlandish, and that's where Christians got mocked for even thinking of it, now slowly starts to look almost normal in some ways. Kathy, you got your hand up. That's that, that, you know what? I was thinking about that because I always go through my mind thinking, what questions are you guys going to ask me that I need to be ready for? And one of the questions I thought someone could ask me is, what will be the nationality of the Antichrist? And you're going to run into some people. They're going to show you some passages, and they're going to say, see, he's Jewish. He's Jewish. Tribe of Dan, that he he bit the heel. Uh, There's going to be some that say that they can make a scriptural case that he's Muslim. There's some people that say that he's going to come from the Middle East. Nope, he's going to come from here. I understand what you're saying, and you make a very valid point for those that didn't hear that. What Kathy is saying is for the Jews to throw their support behind this man, wouldn't he almost have to be Jewish? And there's some people that believe very firmly that he will be uh, you know, apostate Jew. Very firmly they do. But there's also a lot of other people who have a lot of different opinions on that as well. And I think it goes back to that idea of he hasn't been revealed yet. He hasn't been revealed. Obviously, there's something that happens where the nation of Israel feels comfortable with this man something has to happen for the nation of israel to feel comfortable with this man so he obviously cannot be a hardline muslim in many ways because why would that put israel at peace so we don't know for sure but yes there's a lot of subjective evidence that said could say this christian could person could be an apostate jew we don't know for sure anybody else have anything so what happens here is there's this idea of the rapture. We've talked about that. The Antichrist comes into power. Now, how does he come into power? What happens to start this? Well, there's this, this event in Ezekiel 38. It's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. Because something has to happen. Because look here at 2 Thessalonians verse 4. Somehow, some way, this Antichrist gets himself into position that he goes into the temple to show himself that he's God. So what happens for him to get into that position? Well, first off, the temple has to be rebuilt. And you know what? And that's not as absurd as it sounds either way. You can go on official Israel websites, and they just openly talk about wanting to rebuild the temple. They talk about making the garments. You can see the pictures of it. I mentioned to you last week they're trying to breed a red heifer to get the ashes. Um, They're trying to train people for the priesthood. This is not hidden information. Once again, years ago, this sounded absurd. It's, It's right out there. They want to rebuild the temple. 
Now, if you know anything about Israel, there's some problems with trying to rebuild the temple. Where was the actual location of the temple? Well, there's this dome of the rock. There's all these other things going on. So for somebody to kind of come in and make this type of peace where the Muslims and the Jews could both have a holy site very close to each other and be okay with that, that's kind of amazing. But there's this battle of Gog and Magog that's happening in Ezekiel 38. Can you go to the next slide, please? And there's a couple passages here we need to go with. When is this going to happen? Ezekiel 38, verse 8, the first reference. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So when is this going to happen? The first point is when Israel is gathered again. Well, before 1948, that couldn't have happened. Now it's happened. So Israel has been gathered again. Now, you can go through all the different wars that have happened since the War of Independence in 48 and 67 and 73, etc. As Israel has gained more land, you can make the case that Israel is gathered again. Well, there's one other thing that needs to happen before this can happen. Ezekiel 38, verse 11. Israel needs to be at peace. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now, it depends how you want to take this passage. This passage seems to be saying for this battle to happen, Israel has to let its defenses down. There has to be something that happens where Israel feels comfortable and at peace. You know, I, I looked it up one time, and this is, oh, I shouldn't say one day, it's probably about 10, 15 years ago, for this, so the stats aren't correct anymore. But if you just take the nations surrounding Israel, it's like a half a million Muslims. And a lot of these charters of these nations have it right in their charter that they want to see Israel destroyed. Some of these nations won't even admit that Israel exists as a nation. There's just so much hatred there, and it's just unbelievable. And if you go to the quotes that have been said over history by the different rulers of these countries about what they really feel about Israel, uh, they just despise, they just hate. So Israel is always, always on the status of being prepared for war. If you remember correctly, a few years ago, we had a man come out, my mind is blanking right now on his name, but he came out and he was a Jew, and he came out and shared just kind of some end times things and what's going on in the world. And I was talking to him after church, and he had served in one of the wars over there, and I kind of asked him, I said, what, what goes through your mind as a Jewish man living over in Israel? And he goes, as a Jewish man living over in Israel, he goes, you're just waiting your turn to fight. It's just inevitable that you will be in a war because that's just the system that is set up over there. You're surrounded by people that hate you, that want to destroy you. That's what it is. And so for this verse to come true where Israel is at peace, unwalled villages, peaceful people dwell safely, that's kind of amazing. Something has to happen. And possibly it's this. This is where the Antichrist can come in and say, I can bring peace to this situation. And you know what? We can go all the way back to the Carter presidency, where every president wanted to be the one that brought peace to the Middle East. And it's just, it's just not there. It's just not there in any way whatsoever. Peace in the Middle East is not going to happen, and I should say temporary peace in the Middle East is not going to happen until the Antichrist is there. And true peace in the Middle East is not going to happen until Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. So something has to happen where Israel feels at peace. There has to be some type of treaty. The book of Daniel chapter 9 kind of hints at this. And so Israel lets its guard down. Now when Israel lets its guard down, what happens in the battle of Gog and Magog? Can you go to the next slide? What happens next is Russia invades from the north. And they're consumed by the fire of God. 
But there's a group of Muslim nations that come up from the south. And they're taken care of by the Antichrist. So how does the Antichrist get to this point of so much power and prestige with the Jewish people? Because he rides this victory, this quote-unquote victory over these southern nations into an event called the Abomination of Desolation, which we'll get into that in a little bit. But Russia comes from the north, and this group of this coalition of Muslim nations come from the south. Once again, this sounds a bit absurd, but if you follow headlines, I believe it was just in January of this year, Russia and Iran... We're talking about some type of pseudo-military alliance. Russia and Iran. Well, guess what? Iran is named in the Bible. It goes by Persia, because that's what it's called. It's by named in the Bible as being one of these nations that come from the south to attack Israel. And Russia comes from the north. I mean, you see these things playing out right in front of us. It's just right there in front of us. So God takes care of the group from the north. Antichrist takes care of the group from the south. Antichrist seems to steal God's thunder on this. He seems to take credit for calling fire down from heaven and torching this army coming down uh, from the north with Russia. So he rides this victory into the abomination of desolation. Next slide, please. So as he does this, what this abomination of desolation is, now go back to 2 Thessalonians here, verse 4. This is where he is called God or is as worship that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. That's what we're talking about. This temple has been rebuilt. And as this temple has been rebuilt, the Antichrist and his wave of power goes into the Holy of Holies and proclaims himself to be God. Well, the effects of this abomination of desolation, God's wrath is poured out on the earth and man. This is where we get to the trumpet judgments. This is where we get to the bowl judgments. And, you know, we talked a little bit last week about the seal judgments and how bad those were. The seal judgments look like a walk in the park compared to the trumpet and bowl judgments. And this really starts off the last three and a half years of this tribulation period. And this is where God's wrath is poured out on the earth. The Bible says this, that if this time was not shortened, nobody would survive. Nobody would survive. And so this is just the final straw, if you will, where God says, you know, I've had grace, I've had mercy, but now it's time for judgment. Go to the next slide, please. So what happens here is this. The Jews at this time realize... They were wrong. And the Antichrist now turns on the Jews. This is where the Jews now are miraculously saved and they flee into the wilderness and they're supernaturally protected by God for the last three and a half years. But what happens is, according to the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is frustrated that he can't take care of the Jews. God's protecting them, so he kind of turns on everybody. And the world just completely falls apart. You know, we use this phrase, and I hate to use this phrase, um, but it applies. That phrase of where it says literally all hell breaks loose. I mean, this is literally what happens. And when I say literally hell breaks loose, there, there's comments in the book of Revelation about pits down to the bottomless abyss and demons are allowed to come out. I mean, literally, hell breaks loose in some ways. And so the Antichrist now turns on religious Babylon, destroys her. He tries to take out the Jews. He can't. They're supernaturally protected by God. And all this then starts leading up to what we like to call the Battle of Armageddon, of where the Antichrist... Now, what is the Battle of Armageddon? People have different opinions on that. Some people think the Battle of Armageddon is just a long series of battles that culminate in the return of Jesus at the actual second coming. Some people believe the Battle of Armageddon is kind of like the Antichrist and his army is taking on the other armies of the world. They all meet in the Valley of Megiddo, and God almost says, Good, I got you on one spot right now. So I'm going to take you all out at once. Some people believe it's man's attempt to fight God. 
that this is all the armies of the world come together and they're like, okay, bring it on, Jesus, let's take you on. Either way, we know in Revelation 19 what happens. Jesus comes down. He completely, utterly destroys them. The Bible says, uh, you know, about the blood coming up to the bridle of a horse. Uh, It's an awful, awful thing. And then what happens from that point on is what we talked about last week. This is where it takes us then to the millennial reign of Christ. So jump back here to 2 Thessalonians. Let's put this all together now. So we've talked about this idea of the man of sin being revealed, son of perdition, verse 3. We talked about him trying to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is that abomination of desolation. After the Antichrist wins, and I put that in quotes, wins that battle of Gog and Magog, he then rides that victory into the temple to try to be the God. And that's when the Jews realize that they were wrong. Now, why isn't this happening now? Verse 6, and you know that what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This stuff is already starting. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So who is the he that's restraining? Ask a hundred people, you get a hundred opinions. My New King James Version capitalizes the word he. Therefore, that's making the reference to that they believe that this is God. And a lot of people believe that this restraining force, if you will, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. So therefore, when the rapture happens, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church is therefore taken out. Now, that does not mean that the Holy Spirit does not exist on the earth during the time of the tribulation. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. But the idea of this rapture happening and the Holy Spirit being in the church, sealing us, protecting us, empowering us, when that is now taking off, that's almost like the floodgate being opened now. And God says it's time for this to happen. Verse 8, Then the lawless one will be revealed, not revealed, until the restraining force is taken out of the way. He cannot be revealed yet. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So basically what you have right there in verse 8 is the second coming of Christ, like we talked about last week. At that time when Jesus comes back the second time, not the rapture. Remember our, our points from last week. The rapture is we meet Christ in the air and we are taken out. Second coming as Jesus comes back and literally sets foot on the earth. He Second coming. He comes again and sets up his kingdom in Israel, and Jerusalem. At that time, he will destroy the Antichrist, verse 8. And we've already talked about verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He's empowered by Satan, and to do those things, and as he does those things, he then uses those things to bring attention and glory to himself. So we'll take a quick stop right here, because we've covered a lot. Any quick questions, comments about any of this stuff here? Ryan. Yeah, it can. And, you know, back to what Ryan is saying there about Babylon, about what is Babylon. Is Babylon symbolic of something, or is there literally going to be a literal Babylon? The book of Revelation seems to hint that there's going to be a literal Babylon that's going to be literally destroyed. Um, There's one of my favorite articles, and I was just looking in the pulpit to see if I left it up here. It must be back at my desk. I believe it's from 2004. And I've shared this article with you before about prophecy, and I believe it was from the New York Times. And this was uh, during the Iraq War. 
about how Iraq at that time, under the new leadership, and they come right out and say this in this article. It's, it's, you almost have to laugh as you read this, because it's almost like you're reading prophecy in front of you, that this guy from Iraq says the goal is to build Babylon into a resort and, and put hotels and restaurants there and make Babylon a center of where people want to come. And, and spend their holiday there, spend their vacation there. And as you're reading this, I'm just thinking, is that Lord? I mean, are you reading prophecy being fulfilled right in front of you? That was one of the goals? Now, that was about 10, 11 years ago. I don't know how that's going as of now. But like Ryan is saying, is Babylon literal? Or is it more symbolic? Or it may be a mixture of both. But when you read here about Babylon being destroyed in Revelation 17, 18, and 19, it sure seems like there is some literal destruction going on here. And obviously, if you know anything about the Middle Eastern culture, about how important Babylon is to them in their history and their heritage, it wouldn't surprise me in any way whatsoever that there would be a group over there that would want to rebuild that in some ways whatsoever. But there also seems to be some symbolic looking at what Babylon is as well, too. Anybody else have anything here? Yes, Liz. Mm-hmm. Maybe the reference can be off there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll pray for you. I hope you can get better. <laughs> I think they have a vaccination for that now. Um, Ezekiel 38.22, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshot. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many people who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. That's Ezekiel 38.22. Okay, but now, I know there is a part that talks about the from the north. Right. What you have to do is also take the references there in Daniel as well. So the part about the fire there is Ezekiel 38. If you go in Daniel, Daniel takes the other side of that where it starts talking about these different groups coming together. This is, I think, sometimes why uh, end times can be so difficult. I heard a teaching one time about the book of Revelation. They said if you really want to study out the book of Revelation deeply, you're basically going to go to every book of the Bible. Because to really understand end times, you, you have to understand... 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, the falling away. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which we're studying now. You've got to know Daniel. You've got to know uh, Ezekiel. Um, you know, there's all these verses all over the place. And that's part of the point of taking all these puzzle pieces and putting them together right there. Which makes it fun, but at the same time, it's a lot of head-scratching. It's a lot of, okay, Lord, bring this together here. How do these, all these pieces go? And I think what happens sometimes is we have to be careful because you see some people taking one passage out of one place and saying, well, let's just make a point about this. And you hear that and you say, well, that sounds good. But let's look at the whole context of it, the whole counsel of God's word there. And that's why it's important to get all these references done. And that's why I try to, as much as possible, whatever uh, reference we have, is to give you a reference for it to d- double-check that out. So I'm glad Liz brought that up. Daniel 11, yeah. Yeah, if you go back to starting around probably about verse 18. Yeah. Because God actually in Ezekiel 13, 38, excuse me, uses this term about I'm going to put a hook in your mouth. I'm going to pull you down. And what he means by pull you down is going to pull them down from the north to be involved in this. And it's just this fascinating, 
fascinating study. And if you want to, I encourage you, get into Ezekiel 38. And when you read it within the context of what we're talking about here, you just see all this stuff coming together. And when you go study out the names and these lists of nations here in Ezekiel 38, and you see Persia, which is Iran, you see the modern-day Turkey, you see people that can make a case for Magog and Meshach and Rosh being Russia. It's just fascinating how this stuff all comes together here. Fascinating in Ezekiel 38. Anybody else have anything here? Okay. So let's put this all together. It's one thing to know this. It's one thing to have knowledge. But what's the purpose of knowledge if it doesn't affect us in any way whatsoever? If you remember correctly, when we were talking and we first started our study in 2 Thessalonians a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the first chapter deals with the idea of your walk with Christ, the reality of your walk. The second chapter deals with this idea of end times. And then from this point on, now that we have this established, the point that we're supposed to take out of this is how does this impact you now? I mean, what does this do? So fine, you have this understanding, you have this knowledge. You can create a cute little timeline that has rapture, second coming, Gog and Magog. You got this figured out. You know who the Antichrist is and the false prophet. You you, you get it. But if it doesn't impact you in any way whatsoever to say, okay, this stuff is real, this stuff is true, what's the purpose of it? If you can go with me real quick to 1 John chapter 2. These passages, this knowledge is supposed to bring a comfort to you, knowing that God is completely in control. So when you watch the nightly news, you don't have to freak out about things, people. You don't. God knows what he's doing. So it brings you a comfort. This is a great tool for evangelism. Because like I said earlier, there's so many times when I'm talking to someone, this idea of end times just comes up. And and people want to talk about this. They're fascinated. They have questions. Having the knowledge to be able to answer them really opens the door to spread the gospel. But it also spurs us on. I've shared with you many times before my friend that had a shirt that said, Look busy, Jesus is coming. That idea, we know he's returning. If we know he's returning, how does it spur us on? Well, 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Look at that verse one more time, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and may not be ashamed before him at his coming. We know he's returning, and since we know he's returning, that spurs us on in our life. Now, just be careful. This is not a works-based, I'm going to do these things so I'm saved. This is, Lord, I see what you did on the cross, and my heart is so overwhelmed by what you did for me, and I know you're returning. Time is short, Lord. How can I live for you? How can I work for you? Not because I have to, but, Lord, because I want to. And not be ashamed before him at his coming. I use this example all the time. You know, if someone says they're coming over to my house and they're going to be there at 7 o'clock, by golly, at 6.59 and make sure the house is picked up. That way I'm not ashamed that they're coming. You know, when we built uh, you know, our house, we kind of have the old-fashioned uh, foyer sitting room. So if someone pops over to our house unexpectedly, you can come in my house. Now, you may not get past that room, but you at least got into my house. Jesus is saying we're a temple of God. And so therefore, what he's kind of saying here is, hey, is everything in order? You know, because I'm going to be coming back, and I want to see my people doing my work and serving me and loving me, and I don't want to be ashamed at that, Lord. I love you, and I know what you did for me. I know your grace. I know your mercy. And Lord, I just want to be used by you in whatever capacity you call me here, whatever time's left on this earth. 
Listen, we, we could be here for another five minutes. We could be here another five seconds, another five years, another 50 years. I could be laying on my deathbed telling my grandchildren, hopefully, hey, he could be coming soon. When you read Acts in the New Testament, Paul thought he was coming soon. Peter thought he was coming soon. The first pastor I ever heard say it was Chuck Smith, where Chuck Smith said that he felt that the Lord puts on every generation that their generation could be the last generation to spur us on, hopefully, for good works. Once again, not for salvation, but because, Lord, we know that time is short and how can we be used by you in any way whatsoever. So we're going to get into this next week. Now that we have this, how does this apply to us? How does this affect our walk with Christ on our daily basis? It's great to have the knowledge of this, but if this knowledge does not impact us spiritually, what good does it do? Lord, we know this, now let's live this. Anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? Ryan. I read. Oh. No, no, and you bring up a very valid point. I was when I was preparing for this, I uh, found a, an article, and it listed all the names of the Antichrist. And this guy is called by, I mean, the lawless one, son of perdition, Antichrist, the beast. The, I mean, and once again, it's taking all these passages from Daniel and Thessalonians and Timothy and, Re- and Revelation, and you see all the different titles this man has. The most common one that we use is right. We just call him the Antichrist, which is actually out of 1 John. And you don't see that in Thessalonians. You don't see that in Revelation, etc. Um, they all use different terms for him. And when you look at all the different terms of him, it really destro- describes what his character is. Empowered by Satan, used by Satan. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, let's pray. Lord... As we just learn these things, as we just pray over this stuff, as we just just chew on and meditate what you've said here, help this to impact us on all that we say and all that we do for you and your glory, Lord. Lord, give us the wisdom and guidance as we just talk to people and as we just share with them the end. The end, Lord, but also the peace that's coming. And, And for somebody that may be here or listening to this later on, today is the day of salvation. Today is that day to say, Lord, it is you. You're the only one that can take away my sins. Um, The reality of what is coming can be scary. But, Lord, it's a comfort for those that are saved. But for those that don't know you, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, it's a scary thing. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Alrighty, don't forget, you can go back and take a look at the back-to-school giveaway stuff. Fellowship meal next Wednesday. Grab the suckers out there, not to eat, but to use. And if anybody has anything they want to pray over, pop on up here and we'll pray. You guys have a good week and God bless.